Well, go ahead and uh, open up to Matthew chapter 14. Um, looking at our text today, we actually have an interesting amalgamation of events. Uh, we have three, three primary things that we're going to be looking at. Uh, thing number one is that Herod finally hears the news of Jesus. Two, an explanation of both how and why John the Baptist, or as I had said before, John the Baptizer was murdered. And three, uh, Jesus' response to hearing the news of John the Baptist's death. death. Uh, and you'll notice that I go all the way up to verse 14. Uh, most Bibles, including my ESV, uh, essentially draw the line at 12. You'll see a new paragraph begin or a new subtitle. Um, and, uh, and I'm going up to 14. And it's not because I'm thinking that they're wrong or you know, whatever. It's, it's be, they, they draw the line because it's the end of John the Baptist story and it, it goes back to Jesus. So they're, they're switching at that character line. Uh, but I want to go up to 14 because it, it shows Jesus's response to John the Baptist's death. Um, so I'm not saying that the ESV, the KJV, the NIV, the, or the CSB have made a mistake, or the NASB draws a subtitle on. I, I, I'm not saying that they've messed up. They just, I'm drawing the line differently. So anyway, um, so let's, let's go ahead and read. So Matthew 14, starting in verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came, and they took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed they're sick. This is the word of the Lord. In uh, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 14, we encounter one of the strangest theories recorded in the Bible. We see a man racked by his guilt over something he'd done, concoct one of the most easily verifiably false notions anyone could have thought uh, of Jesus in his time of earthly ministry. Um, Hearing of Jesus, Herod says, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. 
Now, you and I can just flip over to Matthew chapter 3 or Mark chapter 1 or Luke chapter 3. We could even turn to John 1, uh, verses 26 to 27, and we, 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 uh, we, we have it easier than Herod to identify that this is a silly theory of his, that Jesus is somehow John the Baptist reincarnated. Um, after all, for a person to be raised from the dead, right? You'd think that the, the, the ministry of that person would have started after the guy was killed, right? For someone to be resurrected, they have to be dead. So in Herod's mind, he cuts the head off John. Then he hears about this Jesus and he's like, oh, wow, John the Baptist came back from the dead. Dumb. I mean, it's just, it's just dumb. You and I just have to flip some pages and it's easier. We have it easier than Herod, but frankly, all he would have to do is ask someone. <laughs> like all he would have to do is, is go to anyone around him and say, hey, wait a second. Was Jesus doing these things before John died? And somebody, somebody would have had to say yes. In fact, you'd, you'd assume that somebody would have said, yeah, actually, Jesus was baptized by John. All Herod had to do was investigate this claim to see that he was wrong. But he didn't. Why? Why didn't he? Because he was struck with a guilty conscience. And that appears to have paralyzed him from seeking out the truth. Now, is Herod's guilt causing him to be irrational? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, that the, the, the resurrection was not even really a thing in Greek mythology. So the question of where he got this is actually pretty, pretty prevalent in general. Um, but his, his guilty conscience is, is kind of ironic because... The word conscience in the Latin, it's, a, it's, a, it's two words smushed together, con meaning with, and scientia, scientia, which means reason. So his guilty conscience, saying that he's guilty with reason, is causing him to be irrational. Anyway, I just think it's ironic. I think it's ironic that somebody, some, somebody with, with such a... Um, high ability to, to just go and say things and they're done, like kill a prophet, you, you'd think that he'd have more of a reason to investigate his own claims. But, but that's, that's not the thing. That's not what we, we think of when we think of conscience, because in English, conscience means essentially with moral reasoning. And he does have moral reasoning. He's, he's afraid. He's guilty. He feels terrible. And guilt and shame have a tendency to paralyze us. A conscience is kind of like a person's moral compass. It's that thing that's inside of us that tells us we've done something wrong, and it produces in us that gut-wrenching effect of knowing, knowing with every fiber of our being that we've done something bad. The concept of conscience in the Old Testament actually has more to do with your kidneys than it does your brain, which makes sense because when you feel really bad, when you've done something, when you've, been, when you've lied and you know, oh man, this could really go poorly for me, or when you, when, when you uh, start, to, start to do something wrong and you just feel like your intestines are deciding like snakes to slither around, mm -hmm. makes sense that they would say, ah, it's your kidneys. You're having a kidney problem right now. So Herod, possessing this, this moral compass, this, this conscience, this self-knowing of his own wrongdoing, must have felt that, that same feeling we all feel 
when we know we've done something wrong and our insides get all squirmy and angry. He felt that sense of shame and it didn't produce regret that makes him seek out Jesus. Instead, it produces that regret that has him concoct a really strange theory and, and hide from Jesus. Do, people, do other people do that when they're in shame? Do they hide from Jesus? Yeah. And do other people produce really crazy theories? Yeah, they do. I actually, uh, I, knew, I knew a lady who, who was part of a small group I was in um, who would complain about her cat. She would ask us to pray for her cat every small group. Prayer time would come around, and it's like, all right, what did the cat pee on this time? Um, or what did it claw? Uh, that was the other thing, where she'd be like, I just bought a brand new couch, and the cat has destroyed it. And so I, I would offer, because I, I, not trying to sound pompous, but that when I was in high school, I did cat rehabilitation. Um, I, I, for my, for my uh, community service hours, I did two things. I helped in my, f my former fifth grade classroom, and then I also would, uh, would ride my bike to an animal shelter before it closed, and I would go play with cats. That's, that's what I would do. Um, and, uh, in fact, I would, I would lie to my parents about it, which is ironic, uh, but I would lie to my parents about it and say, oh, I'm going to a friend's house because like, these cats were dangerous. Um, and then one time we brought home a stray cat and I tried to keep it locked up and I tried to, tried to rehabilitate it and it ended up running away because somebody opened the garage. And anyway, so like, I, I know how to work with problem cats. Problem cats are not usually a problem. You can train them uh, so that they're not a problem. So I was trying to tell her, like, hey, do you want help with your cat? And she kept saying, no, 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 no. And then one day I just kind of got frustrated. I was like, every week, lady, I'm tired of hearing about your cat. <laughs> like, I'm tired of hearing about how bad your cat is. Just, like, feed it more or play with it or something. Um, she, she, was, she was, I think she was complaining, like, it just keeps attacking me in the hallway. And I was, yeah, because you're prey. Anyway, um, so I cornered her, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm like, uh, hey, if you really want to stop the problem, let's stop the problem. You know, I could be uh, God's answer to your prayer of stopping it. And she got really mad at me, and she started yelling at me. Uh, and the reason she gave me just kind of stopped me in my words and had to give me a week to think and pray about it, because she said that she deserved all the problems the cat was doing to her. Because, because she thought the cat was a reincarnation of her mom. I'm not even kidding. Like, it's, I was dumbfounded. You see, her and her mom had problems. And when her mom was dying in the hospital, she was like, no, no, I'm not going to go visit her. And then sometime after her mom died, she adopts this cat. And it was a mischievous little kitten. And it was just horrible. It would just pee on everything. And, and, and she, she somehow concocted this theory that the cat was her mom. It was like possessed by her mom's spirit. And so she absolutely deserved the punishment. In fact, she thought she needed the punishment. So instead of seeking the truth that, one, her cat was not her mom... <laughs> and, and two, that the cat was able to be rehabilitated or given away. That, I mean, just leave the door open. Eventually, the cat's going to venture outside, and then you shut the door. So instead of seeking out the truth in this case, she was paralyzed by her guilt, and she kept suffering. You see, the shame produced by a person's conscience does not always lead them to a knowledge of the truth. 
It does not always even make them do the right thing. It's why guilt trips don't work. It doesn't always mean that God's even working on that person. Have you ever heard that when somebody feels really bad about something they've done and then, and then you, you hear this nonsensical statement, well, God's obviously working in you. No, you don't know that. You can't make that declaration as if God is definitely working on them because they, they, they feel bad about something. You can't say that. That's not true in Herod's case. Otherwise, Herod wouldn't have gone, well, this is obviously the guy that I unjustly killed, uh, resurrected. And it wasn't true in the lady's case of her cat. I mean, no amount of biblical truth where I'm like, hey, guess what? People don't reincarnate as animals. No amount of biblical truth could make this lady conv uh, convinced otherwise. In fact, she just went out of the, she, well, she went to the pastor first and the pastor laughed at her, if I remember correctly. And then she just left the church. If it were true that the feeling of being guilty or condemned by our actions always led to a right response, then we wouldn't have these words in 1 John 3, 21, where John writes, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. There wouldn't be an if, because sometimes a heart condemns a person, and instead of leading to repentance, they go straight to a greater condemnation of themselves. A person who, who's condemned in their own heart will recoil from the gospel, have a, have, a, have a heart that continues getting stony layers on top of it. They will, like Herod, find excuses to not investigate the truth and to not see the goodness of Jesus. On the, on, uh, on the other hand, the, per, the, the regenerate person, the person who's been regenerated by God's grace, will respond more like David in 2 Samuel 24.10, who realized his wrongdoing by doing a, a, a census of the people of Israel. The regenerate person will say, like David, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. The regenerate person will realize their sin and they'll realize their need to repent, to, to seek forgiveness of the Lord and then their need to repent. Friends, possessing a conscience does not imply God's regenerating work in a sinner. It simply means that the person has a moral rationalizing of being a creature made in God's image. It means that this person bears the mark of Adam, who on eating the fruit of, guess what, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, has had his eyes opened and begins to know good and evil. Every person has the capacity to know good and evil. Just because they have a conscience does not mean they are a Christian. Shame of conscience can, like Adam and Eve, cause an unregenerate person to hide from God instead of running to him. And I know you all know a person like Herod, who, who maybe you've preached the gospel to throughout their lives, and you know what they do? They create these crazy theories. Like how, uh, one I heard just the other day, God is just a, uh, uh, a, a force, and he's just an audio force, and if you listen closely, you can hear the hum of God. And I want to say, no, that's blood rushing through your ears, you fool. <laughs> if you cover your ears, you hear a hum. You know why? Because blood rushes through your ears. 
It's the same reason why you hold, when you hold a conch shell to your ear, you hear the ocean. Do you actually hear the ocean? No, you hear the sound of the blood rushing through your ears, reverberating back through the shell into your ear. So science fact of the day, you don't actually hear the ocean through a conch shell. I'm sorry if I just shattered some of your views. So, so, so don't be like Herod when you're confronted with your sin and wrongdoing, when you feel that tinge of conscience. Don't be like Herod who runs from the truth and has these weird theories. Instead, investigate the way of grace that's in Jesus Christ. And just as a side note, Herod actually reappears in the story. This particular Herod, there's Herod, Herod the Great. This is... That's the grandfather. He built the temple. There's um, Herod the Tetrarch, who's the ruler, the king over over Judea. And that's the one we're dealing with here. And there's another Herod, actually, later in in history. Herod was a popular name. And they, by the way, were all the kings in the same area. Um, But Herod reappears in Luke 23. Jesus appears before Herod. And Herod basically says, dance, monkey. I want to see you do a miracle. And Jesus doesn't. Because he's not trying to put on a show or a spectacle for people. Instead, he's there to glorify his father. And so when Herod, uh, Herod, who could have set him free if he saw a miracle, Jesus instead decides to not do the miracle. Why? Because he's marching towards the cross. So when you see sin in your heart, march towards the cross. March towards God and his word. May you be reassured before God by having the Holy Spirit work that shame out of your heart and onto the cross. Run to Jesus. Don't have strange, funky theories like Herod or or the cat lady that I mentioned. Run to Jesus and feel the warmth of his blood shed on Calvary's hill that brings forgiveness. That's not going to just happen through guilt. It's not going to happen just through shame. It comes through investigating who Jesus truly is, which is only found in his word. Now, continuing on our theme of conscience, we actually see another reaction to a guilty conscience in verses 3 through 11. So we move past just what, what Herod's guilt, or that Herod's guilty, and we see what he's guilty for. Uh, what's happening in these verses is a woman named Herodias, who's, who's married Herod, might be his concubine. Uh, tradition says that, that Herodias married Herod, um, uh, but, but Herodias forces Herod to kill John the Baptist. So why, you might ask. I hope you're asking. It's because John the Baptist has been announcing the sinfulness of this union between Herod and Herodias. You see, Herodias was the wife of Herod's brother, Philip. I know this gets really confusing. The, 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 the lady <laughs> was married to Herod's brother, and somehow now Herod is married to her. So John the Baptist was rightly declaring that this was sinful. He was a prophet, a prophet of the Lord God, of Yahweh. Right? So he, he was exposing the works of darkness, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 5.11. He was remembering the law. Uh, so in verse 4, he says, it is not lawful for you to have her. He's remembering the law. He's remembering in Leviticus 18, uh, ver- uh, verse 
6, uh, none of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. More specifically, 1816, which expounds that to, to say specifically, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. Namely, you were not supposed to marry your sister-in-law. And that's what, that's what Herod had done. John the Baptist was pointing out this unrighteousness. It, this unrighteousness was in God's chosen nation and his chosen people. And even though Herod was a Gentile ruler, he had no Jewish blood. He, 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 John the Baptist was saying, hey, this is happening in God's chosen people. You're a ruler of God's chosen people. It's not lawful. It's not okay. He was trying to do it because he knew that if, if the rulers were corrupt... Ultimately, that, that moral corruption would pollute the people because that's what happens. Now, I want to actually point out that Herod was a really good ruler in Israel. Uh, Herod, uh, Herod the Great, so this Herod's grandpa, uh, Herod the Great was a wicked guy. He's the guy that killed the babies when he found out that the Messiah was coming, that Christ was coming. He, uh, he had all the babies, three and under, killed. Um, so Herod the Great, even though he built the temple, bad guy, really bad dude. Um, this Herod, though, was a great ruler. He had actually reinvigorated the economy of, of Israel. He had made it a functioning economy. Um, Herod was really known for, for, for his own pleasure. Uh, he was actually a full-blown engager in the classic Greek philosophy of hedonism. Um, but he'd realized that he could be more hedonistic if his area was successful. You could get more money as ruler if more money is flowing through your economy. And so he had realized that, and so he had actually uh, served the, the Pharisees quite well in, in reinvigorating a temple system. Uh, he, he had made his subjects very happy. He gave the Jews lots of freedom, even though they were uh, putting a lot of Politically, there was some charge because he was putting these Greek uh, uh, figures of an eagle on Jewish synagogues. Um, so uh, he was doing that predominantly to keep Rome happy, but, uh, but, but it, it was creating some zealots and some people that were trying to war against Rome. But overall, like Herod was actually a really good guy. Not good morally, but a good ruler. John the Baptist realized his unrighteousness. So while the Jewish leaders would hold their tongue when Herod was doing these unrighteous th things, um, they didn't want to speak out against him. They, they actually were more pro-Herod than anything else. Uh, John the Baptist, knowing that God's people are supposed to stand up against unrighteousness, like the prophets Ezekiel or Isaiah, or even more so the minor prophets like Amos and Joel, uh, John the Baptist takes a stand against Herod's act of sin with his sister-in-law. Herod then uh, decided he was going to silence John the Baptist, and he throws him in prison, and he wants to kill him, but gosh, you know, the people around really regard him as a prophet, so Herod, being the good politician, he's like, well, I'm going to make, make the Jews happy, I'm going to make me happy, I'm going to throw him in prison, I'm going to keep him in prison. But that wasn't good enough for Herodias. Uh, she wanted him silenced forever because, because, frankly, just because someone's behind bars 
Doesn't mean they can't be visited. Doesn't mean they don't still have a voice. And so the John's disciples, I mean, they even remove his body from the prison. John's disciples are going and visiting. They're talking to him. And so he still is able to say things. And so Herodias decides she wants him dead. So when her daughter, who's Herod's niece, dances seductively before Herod, by the way, tradition says she was 12. So like I start to have a little throw up in my mouth come up. Uh, but but uh, that's tradition. That's not actually proven. But when, when Herod's niece dances seductively before him and his guests, uh, Herodias seizes the opportunity when she said, when uh, the daughter comes and goes, hey, 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 he, he said he'd give me, uh, g- give, give me a, a gift. And he actually says up to half his kingdom, because that's the most you can give away before uh, you're not, not a ruler anymore. Um, uh, that's in Luke. But, but he, he says, um, or she goes to her mom and her mother says, basically, tell him to give you John the Baptist's head on a platter. So being a good daughter, she goes, she tells Herod, girl obeys her mother, Herod grants the petition. And he actually does it a little unwillingly too. That's, 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 uh, that's the funny part, but he's not, he's not doing it unwillingly for the right reasons. You read in verse nine, and the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. Because of his oath of giving the girl what she wanted, and because of his guests, because he wants to save face and show that he's an honorable dude. He's showing he's an honorable guy by killing a prophet. Mm, bad. So his moral compass is a little misaligned there. <laughs> Probably not in the best place. So that it's here that we see Herod's guilty conscience, the reason for Herod's guilty conscience. It wasn't guilt over actually killing John. It was guilt over having to do it because a potentially teenage girl had, uh, had tricked him into it. See, guilt over being convicted can lead people to further acts of malice and self-preservation. And that's our second point. This is, this is a primary evidence to how we can know whether or not a person is in the process of being regenerated. So we can't always say just because they have a conscience, you know, God's definitely working on them. But we can absolutely say when we watch somebody like feel guilty in the right way over the right things and, and really start to desire repentance, that's when we can see like, I really hope, probably even pray that God's working in that individual. Whether or not their sin devolves further or they begin to see repentance as a good and beautiful thing is a primary evidence of whether or not God is working in an individual. So uh, two applications from this section before we hit our final point. Uh, One, we are to call out the evils and the unrighteousness of our culture like John the Baptist did. We are. We actually are. Um, that's really not an issue for us in our day and age. We, like, we love to call out the evil of others. Um, we love to live out Ephesians 4.11, which, which, is, uh, which is where we get um, the, the statement that, I'm sorry, 5.11. I said that earlier too. Ephesians 5.11, where we're not supposed to participate in the works of darkness, but we are supposed to expose them. We, we love doing that, man. Um, we really don't have a problem there. 
But remember, Herod was actually a good leader. He was a good king. He had reinvigorated the economy. He was, in essence, a lesser of many evils. He was a lesser evil of his grandfather. He was a lesser evil of actually his sons. Uh, Herod went a little crazy. The Herod the Great went a little crazy and killed, killed his sons, um, which is why Herod the Tetrarch became the leader, because all, like his dad and all of his uncles were dead. Um, so, but Her Herod's sons after him, this Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, his sons went a little crazy and kind of destroyed the economy. So this Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, was really a lesser of many evils, but John the Baptist didn't pick sides. He wasn't, he wasn't on one political spectrum and not the other. Instead, he realized, hey, you know what? I have to call out the wickedness in everyone. John knew and deplored the evils of even those that had benefited his country specifically economically. So therefore, we should be like John and abhor the evils of all the wicked in the world, even if we agree with them politically. Because John would have agreed with Herod on a lot of stuff. This is a call to consistency. And this consistency is exactly why many who, like me, didn't shy away from hating the unrighteousness of former President Trump. And this is about the most political I'm ever going to get from the pulpit. Um, it's why many, like me, were accused of being liberal because I wasn't, uh, well, not me specifically, but me and many others didn't jump on a bandwagon. Even if we agreed with his political decisions, there were things that he said, specifically in locker rooms, about how to treat women. Uh, there, there were things that he said on Twitter, <laughs> a lot of things on Twitter. <laughs> there were things that he said that it was like, uh, I'm uncomfortable. And so we would talk about it. And so therefore we were called liberal because we, we, we didn't follow the, the, the bandwagon. I agreed with a lot of the executive orders, even though nobody thinks that. And I'm sure many of you right now are forming that proverbial but, but, but in your head. Resist that urge in the Lord, seriously. We should be like John the Baptist. We should call out sin and wickedness. No matter the political team the person bats on, no matter it. It doesn't matter. Sure, one side is much heavier on the spectrum, but we should be looking at the wickedness. And we should be calling it out. To quote the biblical commentator Matthew Henry on Ephesians 5.11, we must witness against the sin of others and endeavor to convince them of their sinfulness in our words. So therefore, be consistent like John the Baptist was. He died. He died because he was consistent. So, just to recap on that application, number one, we are to call out the evils and unrighteousness of our culture. We are. Number two, guilt can produce a more wicked heart. So do not rely on, a guilt, on guilt as a weapon of reformation. Herod and Herodias both had guilty consciences. But instead of turning to the Redeemer, instead of doing the righteous thing, that guilt led them to a deeper and deeper depravity, even killing a prophet. So we should not be using guilt as a weapon for reformation. And frankly, my family is king of guilt. 
there is a particular individual in my family who really should be given a crown. <laughs> and, and guilt is wielded like a weapon. And frankly, that is in me. And I am wrestling with that. I, I literally ended, ended my manuscript at that point because I was really not wanting to continue talking about guilt as a weapon for reformation. Um, really didn't want to. But frankly, I have the innate response to shove into my children guilt. When they do something wrong, I want to make them feel bad. And that is atrocious. That is depraved. That is the sin in me. And the Lord is working on me. So when I read that application, guilt can produce a more wicked heart. I know that that's exactly where I could take my kids. And it scares me. Our final section and point is found in those controversial two verses that I know so much more than Bible translators about. It's not true. Um, but it switches to Jesus. Verses 13 and 14. Now, when Jesus heard this, uh, that, that is the news of John's murder, his execution, the way he was executed, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, I want to make clear that I'm not ending this sermon saying, be like Jesus. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, what, I, what I want us to do is to look at the compassion of Jesus. So just to think about it, Jesus, struck with sorrow, goes off to be by himself, gets in a boat, takes the boat around, around the sea, tries to go to a desolate place, or he goes to a desolate place by himself. He is with moral reason to be mourning, right? We can say that. He, he ha his conscience is causing him to go mourn, to want to be by himself. And instead of letting him be by himself, people follow him on foot, Leave me alone. That's what I'd be saying. And that's what any normal person would be saying. Somebody in grief and sorrow and mourning and shame. Well, not, not in his case, shame. But, but grief and sorrow and mourning would want to say, go away. I'm trying to be by myself. Stop following me. Leave me alone. But that's not what God does. God here, even in his mourning, even in his sadness, shows compassion on the sinner who comes to him in need. That's the third point. God, even when mourning, shows compassion on the sinner who comes to him in need. Imagine the first person who came up to Jesus. I don't, we're, we're not told where Jesus is. We just know he comes ashore. And, and immediately has compassion on the, on the crowds. We don't know if Jesus has tears in his eyes. We don't know, we, we, we don't know what his, his complexion looks like. Have you ever seen someone who's just sad and it looks like their face is sagging? Their countenance, as Jane Eyre, uh, the book Jane Eyre says, every five seconds. But, but, the, but you, you can tell, you can tell their sorrow. I don't know 
what Jesus looked like. I don't know if he had a smile on his face, a smile of graciousness or what, but imagine being that first person that goes up to Jesus, Jesus trying to be by himself, and, and they say something like, hey, Jesus, I know you're busy and all, but could, could you heal me? Could you take away my ailment? I'm, I'm suffering. I, I need you. I heard of you, and, and, and I need your help. And then Jesus, in his divine nature, has compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus here has divine compassion on the needy. Even, even if he's doing something that the normal person really couldn't be interrupted doing. So I'm not saying be like Jesus. Instead, I'm saying look at Jesus. Look at him. God, God is mourning the evils of his day, the destruction of a prophet, the killing of his cousin. He's, he's also still mourning the evils of our day. His eyes and gaze are not averted. He knows even more fully than you the wickedness that's happening in the world. He knows even the hearts of the wicked. But even in God's hatred and sorrow and mourning, guess what? You can still interrupt him. When's a good time to reach out to God with your troubles and needs? I never know what a good time to call you guys is. I, I, know, I, I know one dude that naps in the middle of the day, which is right, right about the time that I always have the freedom to call, and that's not a good time to interrupt him. <laughs> I know that, and so I avoid calling. But when's a good time to reach out to Jesus? Is, is there a time of day that's more effective? Is there a time of day that, may, you know, you schedule out, schedule out God's day between 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. hating sinners. 11 a.m. To, to 1 p.m., you know, lunch, <laughs> the rest of the day loving sinners. No, no, you can interrupt God at any time, just like this crowd interrupted his morning. Jesus is right now in his divine, uh, well, he's fully God, fully man. So in that fully Godness, he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, willing to be interrupted, willing to be approached, and a throne of grace. Even though a storm is approaching or has now hit Louisiana, God is not too busy to hear your prayers. God is not spinning the winds and picking up one house and moving an alligator from one area to another and bringing a flood in one section and, and too busy to hear you. No, he can still hear you. How wonderful, kind, and compassionate God is that he might be willing to hear us even in the midst of all the wickedness that God is absolutely mourning in this world. Therefore, I close with one final conclusion. If you're feeling guilty in conscience, if you've done a wicked evil, if you have unconfessed sin that you've been too ashamed to bring before God, do not be like Herod and hide from the Savior, but go to the Savior who's willing to be approached and interrupted. Even the news of an unrighteous death of his righteous cousin could not deter him from his mission of glorifying his father and, and healing the sick. How much more then is he willing to intercede for us providing salvation, repentance, 
and glorifying his father still today. Go before this gentle and compassionate Savior today, friends. Do not allow guilt to drive you away from him. If it's any consolation, we're all filthy sinners trying to assuage our guilt uh, with broken and filthy righteous deeds. Isn't that encouraging? <laughs> no, it's not. What's encouraging is that God should hide his face from us. He should hide his face from you. But he doesn't. We are free to do like the prophet Isaiah prays in Isaiah 64. In verses 8 to 9, Isaiah says, But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are your people. Let's pray. God, I want to pray what Isaiah prayed. Oftentimes it feels like wickedness abounds and is unrelenting and is un, un, uh, unshackled in our world. It feels like storms, both literal and figurative, will never cease. The rains will never stop. The floods will never end. God, do not hide your face from us, but please, O oh Lord, have compassion on us. Take us in our guilt and our shame and restore us with mercy and loving kindness. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, do not hide from the pains of conscience. Do not harden your hearts against God. Do not let your guilt drive you into greater unrighteousness. Instead, go to him who gladly and compassionately receives you. Go in peace, saints.